America, and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on Russian aggression and the violations of international humanitarian law in Ukraine. Our guest is David Schwendeman, an expert in international war crimes prosecution. Mr. Schwendeman served for over 25 years as an assistant U.S. attorney in the District of Utah. In Bosnia and Herzegovina, he served as an international prosecutor in the Special Department for War Crimes of the State Prosecutor's Office from 2006 to 2009. In Afghanistan, Mr. Schwendeman was the Justice Attaché in the U.S. Embassy in Kabul, then the Assistant Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, SIGAR. He left Kabul in 2015 for The Hague to oversee the investigation of war crimes and crimes against humanity committed in Kosovo from 1998 to 2000 for the European Union's Special Investigative Task Force. The philosophy of just war distinguishes between why nations fight wars and standards for a just war, Yusad Bellum, and how they fight once the war is started and the ethical standards for fighting, Yus Imbello. In the 13th century, St. Thomas Aquinas revised Augustine's version of just war theory, creating criteria for use ad bellum, such as the war needed to be waged by a legitimate authority, have a just cause, and have the right intentions, as well as criteria for use in bello, or how war should be fought, including the use of violence in a way that is proportional to war and discrimination between combatants and non-combatants. The modern movement to impose limits on how war is waged includes President Abraham Lincoln's 1863 Code of Laws for Armies in Battle, promulgated during the Civil War. The Lieber Code, named for its author, the German-American political philosopher Francis Lieber, drew a distinction between combatants and non-combatants. It prohibited the use of poisons and forbade wanton destruction, torture, cruelty, and attacks motivated by revenge. The Lieber Code was the first of its kind, and Lincoln issued the order to both Union and Confederate soldiers, although neither side adhered to it strictly. The following year in Europe, the first Geneva Convention went into force after the war between the Austrians and the French showed the horrific carnage made possible by modern weaponry. The 1864 Geneva Convention dealt with the treatment of the wounded, and further conventions expanded on it, including the Hague Convention in 1899 and the Hague Convention of 1907. The conventions addressed complex issues, including the peaceful settlement of disputes, concepts of what constitutes a belligerent, and the permissible treatment of prisoners of war. Legal developments followed the First and Second World Wars, culminating in the Nuremberg Charter and the Nuremberg Trials from 1945 to 1949, intended to 
prosecute and punish the major war criminals of the European Axis. The use of heinous and devastating weapons in the 20th century, including chemical and nuclear weapons, drove the international community to agree to a set of norms that remain in place. In 1945, 51 like-minded countries created the United Nations to maintain international peace and security, develop friendly relations among nations, and promote social progress, better living standards, and human rights. In 1948, the UN General Assembly adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which set out to describe what every human should expect and demand from those who govern and from the way nations interact. Two years later, a UN commission created and the UN General Assembly adopted the Nuremberg Principles, a framework of basic norms governing what is expected of states and political leaders in matters related to war. The principles make it clear the political and military leaders who violate the norms are to be held accountable. The Nuremberg Principles are foundational to international humanitarian law, since 1950 have guided efforts to investigating and prosecuting war crimes and crimes against humanity, like those that Russian forces are committing in Ukraine today. We welcome David Schwendemann to discuss the evolution of human rights law, international criminal justice investigations and prosecutions, and the prospect of prosecuting war crimes in Ukraine. David Schwendemann, welcome to Battlegrounds. Hey, it's great to see you again, and it was such a privilege to work with you in, in Kabul many, many years ago. Thanks for joining us on Battlegrounds. Likewise, General. It's always a pleasure to see you. Even a greater pleasure to get to talk to you. We've had some great conversations in the past. We have, and we have an important conversation today in an area in which you, you're expert, and of course, we're all watching with horror, the, you know, the brutal uh, invasion of uh, of Ukraine, the suffering of the Ukrainian people, and 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 the media and, and our attentive public are you know they're we're all using a lot of different terms right to describe uh, Putin's uh, attack against um, against Ukraine right uh, you know a, a war crime a crime against humanity genocide can you just help our viewers uh, understand you know the definitions of these terms and and how we ought to use them and and understand them sure I'll I'll do my best. Um, there is, there are at least three categories of crime that I'll address. The first is the crime of aggression. Uh, that's existed since Nuremberg. It was a crime that the Soviets had a great deal to do with in insisting that it be part of the Nuremberg indictment. It was count one and count two of the Nuremberg indictment. Um, it's a crime that is a leadership crime, requires that you have effective control of the military and the political circumstances that allow the invasion of a sovereign country, uh, preparation, planning, and invasion of a sovereign country. That's the crime of aggression. And of course, that's a crime on everybody's mind in Ukraine because it's clearly, in my view, a crime of aggression that Putin and perhaps others are responsible for. They prepared for, they planned, and they executed the invasion of a sovereign country un, unjustified, unprovoked, and defenseless, actually. That's the crime of aggression. 
there are reasons that the International Criminal Court can't deal with the crime of aggression in this circumstance that have to do with jurisdictional limits put on the crime when it became a part of the Rome Statute in 2018. The second body of crime is crimes against, crimes against humanity. That's a concept that was new to the world of international law with Nuremberg. And it was a crime that was described by a man named Hirsch Lauterpack, who was a citizen of Lviv. He was a scholar in Lviv. Ukraine had a big hand in defining crimes against humanity. Crimes against humanity are basically the commission of certain predicate offenses, torture, murder, rape, disappearance, persecution, committed during and in connection with a systematic or widespread or systematic attack on a civilian population. It's not um, associated with a group, an ethnicity, a gender, a gender political identity. You don't have to have any of that, just a civilian population. So widespread or systematic. Ukraine, clearly, there is a widespread and systematic attack on a civilian population broadly and specifically in those areas where the Russians have attacked Mariupol, for example, Bucha, Kharkiv, wherever. Um, that's again, <clears throat> you can be guilty of a crime against humanity for being a participant, a knowing participant in these predicate acts that are connected to this widespread or systematic attack. So I prosecuted people in Bosnia and Herzegovina who were uh, soldiers, policemen, others who were engaged in rape or torture or disappearance, murder, who were not leaders, not commanders, but were trigger pullers, um, small time unit commanders for crimes against humanity. You can be guilty of a crime against humanity as an individual. The third category of crime or war crimes, traditional war crimes, violations of the law of armed conflict or the law of war. These are spelled out more specifically in the Geneva Convention, the, the four Geneva Conventions and the protocols, and also uh, clearly defined in the Rome Statute. Uh, these are, for example, the indiscriminate attacks on civilian populations, indiscriminate shellings, attacks on hospitals, attacks on uh, infrastructure, unjustified or un, uh, attacks on infrastructure that aren't justified as military objectives. Um, concept of war crimes is clearly you have to have a military objective, a legitimate military objective, and you have to use just proportional force against that military objective, and you have to minimize to the extent possible civilian casualties or casualties among those who are non-combatants. And you, as you know, you can be a non-combatant if you've been injured so badly, you can't continue the fight. Your wars to combat. You're out of, out of the fight for one reason or another. So war crimes include rape, pillage, um, torture, murder, clearly. Um, and, it, and as we've said, the indiscriminate shelling of the civilian population or intentional civil, uh, shelling of the civilian population. The intentional destruction of Mariupol, for example, is clearly, in my view, one of the best examples of a war crime you could have. 
uh, not unique. I mean, it was done in Homs, in Aleppo, and in Syria, and in Grozny, Grozny and Chechnya, and, and other places, all part of the form that the Russians have got for using violations of the law of armed conflict as a tactic and strategy in warfare. And the final um, category of crime is genocide. Uh, genocide is often thought of as the big league crime. When I was in Sarajevo, uh, I, was often, I was often criticized because I wasn't using the genocide provisions of the Bosnian code more aggressively. Uh, everything had to be classified as genocide or it just wasn't important enough. Um, that's not, that, that's a, an unfair way of looking at the crime. It's a difficult crime to prove. It has a jurisprudence now after the ICTY began prosecuting people for genocide. And one of the elements of genocide is genocidal intent. So proving genocidal intent that I, as the person that's executing this offensive, had in mind that I was going to destroy this population in whole or in part is something I have to prove and that becomes problematic uh, in many cases and often can only be proven by starting low and building patterns with the evidence to show that it was indeed the intent of leadership to make this happen and that people involved in it knew that that was the intent. So you could prosecute Mladic and Karadzic and others for genocide, for not only putting into effect these operations, but knowing that they were intended to eliminate populations in Bosnia. So those are the- crimes. I think it's striking about uh, Xinjiang and, and the Uyghurs, I'd like to ask you about that as well, but I think the reports are that Uyghur birth rates are down 60%. And yes. this is, and this is uh, you know, this is in part uh, due to these, you know, the, the concentration camps or the internment camps forced labor, the separation of the sexes, but it's also forced sterilization yes. uh, as, as well. So I, I, think it, I think it was a very deliberate decision by the Trump administration to call what's happening in Xinjiang against the Uyghurs genocide. And can you comment on that as just while we're on the topic of genocide yeah. and what meets the standard? What's, what's your view of that, David? Well, uh, look, I fully agree. Um, whenever you target a specific population by race, gender, ethnicity, confession, political identity for elimination or reduction to the point where they're no longer able to exert power or authority. Uh, and you do it intentionally by killing them, by rounding them all up and moving them someplace where they are no longer part of a community, by destroying their cultural identity. And that was something that was common in Bosnia and Herzegovina as well destroying the Olympic Museum, destroying the library in Sarajevo, targeting them specifically for firebombing. Uh, mosques were destroyed, used to register artillery fire, frankly. Uh, they, left some of the they left some of the minarets in, uh, in Sarajevo stand, though they destroyed the mosques around them so they could register their artillery from the hills surrounding Sarajevo on the mosques. Um, so yes, uh, as far as the Uyghurs are concerned, I have no, I'm not a prosecutor, I'm not a politician, I'm not a diplomat or a policymaker anymore. So my, what I think is relatively unimportant, but I can now make some, I can say some things I wouldn't have been able to say before. And that is, no, I fully agree that the Uyghurs are, are the object of genocide 
committed by the People's Republic um, for political advantage, for political reasons, to consolidate their power in those areas where the Uyghurs used to be and eliminate them as an op a potential opposition to, to the power structure. Similarly, I think it's not yet firm whether what's going on in Ukraine could be called a genocide. But clearly when you round up people in the Eastern part of Ukraine and you move them away from where they've lived into yeah. Russian territory where they can be controlled, when you devastate all of the civilian infrastructure in those areas where they used to live, which makes it difficult, if not impossible for them to return, and you target them as a political entity, not necessarily as an ethnic group or as a um, racial group, but as a political identity, some group with a political identity, to destroy that political identity, you're getting close to um, yeah. the genocide. And I'm, th I'm thinking, David, of, of Putin's you know, 6,000 word essay that he published under his name in July or August of, of last year of, of 2021, in which he basically said, hey, Ukraine doesn't even exist, right? There is exactly. no Ukrainian identity. And, and of course, he's, he's put it under assault. On, on Putin, what, what do you, how do you, where does Putin fall into these categories? I mean, and then, and then if we call him a war criminal, Right. Mm -hmm. what, what good does it do? Does that does that does that help you know, stop what he's doing at you, you? The the, the um, examples that we've that we've been talking about in terms of uh, of Russian aggression and and I, I would call war crimes in 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 Chechnya in Grozny, the leveling of Grozny and mm -hmm. and uh, you know, the killing of over 100,000 people there, uh, the serial episodes of mass homicide in the Syrian civil war. We mentioned the invasion of Georgia now the reinvasion of Ukraine. Uh, and of course, remembering that Ukraine was first invaded in 2014, the common denominator to all of that, even in Grozny, before he became, uh, before he became uh, a president, uh, before uh, Boris Yeltsin abdicated and Putin became president in 2000, was Vladimir Putin, because he was in charge of the operation uh, in Chechnya uh, in 1999. So what good is it going to do, David, to, 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 to call, to label him a war criminal or place him in one of these other categories? Well, two questions. One is, can you label him as such? Actually, three questions. Can you label him as such? Is there proof that would support a legal conclusion that he is? And then finally, what good does it do? Answering the last first, not going to stop him. He doesn't care whether people call him a war criminal. They don't. He doesn't care whether he's called a genocidaire. Other than for the political impact, of using those terms to describe him. And maybe he's personally offended, who knows? Um, but it's certainly not gonna stop him from prosecuting the war the way he's prosecuting it, or to the end he somehow perceives is the one he wants. Now, can he be called a war criminal? I firmly believe that he's committed the crime of aggression and he's as much as admitted it. He said it soon after the invasion. What he called it a special military operation is irrelevant. The simple fact is he used military force against a sovereign nation, unprovoked and unjustified. He planned, prepared for it, and executed that invasion and was proud of it and continues to tout that as a necessary thing. The, the most interesting feature of that, I think, is uh, Lukashenko's role in all of this mm -hmm. as an accomplice to the crime of aggression. And if you wanna take it one step further, if Xi Jinping got involved in supporting Putin's invasion, 
either with material or with some other form of assistance that was directly related to the invasion, he too could and be- just, And just for our viewers, David, Lukashenko is the president of Belarus, Belarus. and, and uh, which played host to the invading force uh, just prior to the invasion yeah. in February of, of this year. And part of the invasion was staged from yeah. Belarusian te- territory. So right. his complicity is probably clearer than others. But one of the things that calling him an aggressor uh, accomplishes in outlining why he's committed the crime of aggression. And again, we'll get to the part you asked, what good does it do? Can you really enforce that? But one of the advantages of, of calling him out as such is it puts other leaders with some sort of ability to assist him on notice. You get involved in this and you could drag yourself into this mess as well from a legal point of view, not just a political and diplomatic and military point of view. So the question is, and the other thing I wanna say is, Putin, I think is um, in the last couple of days, there there have been news reports that he's taken a very direct role in the tactical and operational um, details of the war. Um, It's almost Hitler-like. He's become kind of the commander-in-chief in the field as well as the strategist. That's right. not good for him when it comes to legal prosecution, because well, because this one, one of the big tests, right? One of the big one of the big challenges, David, for for you, I would imagine, in, in Bosnia Herzegovina was. Uh, was trying to establish that chain of command, right? Isn't yes. that typically one of the hardest things to do? Yes. Uh, not not maybe that hard with the Russian army, right? But in the with the militias and the and the you know the the uh, the Serbian you know, sort of uh, paramilitaries. I bet yes. that was a tough part of the task for you. Yes. In fact, um, uh, one of the cases that I did, the uh, Tanaskovic case, involved uh, Visegrad, which is in the eastern part of Bosnia and Herzegovina, one of the first places overrun when the war began in 1992. And there were um, paramilitary groups, the White Eagles, for example, Milan Lukic's group, the White Eagles, that were operating in the area. Uh, One of the features of those groups was, as the evidence became better known, and as we got more and more of the history of how this all happened, which mind you was a decade almost after the war ended, became apparent that what Milosevic and the Serbs had done and Kadijic and the Bosnian Serbs had done is they had sought out criminal organizations and criminal elements and it turned them loose on the population, knowing that by doing that in the areas where they were operating, they would sow terror in the civilian population they would be able to displace people much with greater ease and that it would make it almost impossible for people to go back to those areas once fighting may have subsided. So yes, paramilitaries, militias, um, mercenaries. Um, Milosevic was famous or the Yugoslavs were famous for dipping into the prison population and pulling out people that had convicted have been convicted of murder or serious violent offenses and putting them into units or sending them to Bosnia and Herzegovina to be incorporated into units. I prosecuted a man 
who committed war crimes in central Bosnia and Herzegovina, a Croat, who had in his unit a person that was known as a, a vicious murderer. Somebody had been convicted of a homicide and been sent to him for the specific purpose of him engaging in murder in small places like Akhmici and other places. He was, he was a terrible human being. And the person I prosecuted, Pasko Lubicic, was responsible for him because he was part of his unit, but controlling him, it was known by the people that sent him to Lubicic that he would be uncontrollable. Uh, now Lubicic knew what he was doing, took no measures to stop him, knew what he had done, but did nothing to address what he had done, except some perfunctory investigations never led any, anywhere. But I actually had witnesses who'd been um, assaulted, traumatized. He thought he'd killed them, uh, who came back and testified me, uh, for me on the witness stand about this man's behavior. And, um, so if you're talking about using um, unconventional means to carry out the fight. Putin's clearly guilty of that. He's right. got the mercenary groups yes. that um, have been have been in, introduced into the fight. The Chechnyan, the band of Chechnyans, uh, which actually I think were deployed to Ukraine to commit mass murder. That's their specialty. Yes, is to be, is, is to be able to commit mass murder. Yeah, and in Bosnia and Herzegovina, there was a uh, brigade known as the Yaharina Brigade that was made up of deserters, um, um, Bosnian Serb deserters that had fled to Yugoslavia, captured, rounded up and given, an, and given an ultimatum. You either spend your time in prison here in Yugoslavia, or you train in this special unit, the Yaharina Brigade, and uh, we'll use you however we want to use you. And the, Yahar the Yaharina Brigade was used to commit the executions in Srebrenica, it was one of the units that was used to commit the, the uh, executions in Srebrenica. And the advantage is when you send people in from elsewhere, you send mercenaries into Ukraine, the victims have no idea who you are. Um, you go in, your uniforms don't have insignia. You, don't necessar you aren't necessarily identifiable as part of any organized force. And you can pretty much do whatever you want because you're pretty certain that even if somebody survives your assault, they're not going to be able to identify you. Um, that was one of the problems we had in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina over and over and over again. Um, and besides that, victims of this kind of thing, what are you trying to do? Remember the people who did it? You're trying to survive. Yeah. So what are you trying to do? Right. Is whatever it overcome by grief and shock. Yeah. And, you know, so again, I guess the question again is like, okay, what, what, what good does this do, David? And of course, yeah. you know, you know, there's some of our viewers might think, okay, well, isn't all war inhumane, right? Yeah. But, I, but, it, but it is, I think, you know, our adherence to ethics uh, yes. in, in our military, the law of yeah. land warfare, but really our, our ethos, which even goes beyond, you know, the, yes. the law yes. uh, in terms of, of governing our behavior and setting expectations for one another in combat expectations in particular about how one treats not only non-combatants, but how one treats combatants and prisoners and so forth. Yes. And, and, um, and, and of course that takes, that takes discipline, but it takes an ethos and yes. all of which seems absent. So when I think of this, David, and, and I, I mean, of course you're the expert on this, I think that, that our adherence to the law of war, our adherence to the Geneva convention, 
this is all, these are all ways of making war less inhumane. I mean, is that, is that, is that how you think of it? Well, yeah. I mean, that's part of it. Um, It's actually this whole movement, the one you've just described um, has actually been criticized for making war more possible Mm. because it's become less appropriate um, because it's become more humane. I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that either. And you know, you have the you have the the Sherman quote, right? That you know that it is good that war is so terrible, right? Lest you know, lest we become fond of it, right? But 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 war is terrible, obviously, because it it involves uh, such horrible loss and suffering. No no matter how you know it's constrained. And general, you've had much more experience with it personally than I have. My experience with it has been in the middle of it in Afghanistan, but not carrying a weapon. Um, well, but, but you had to confront the horrors of war. I mean, I, yes. I don't know if you would share with your viewers uh, when you came across a young girl yes. in Bosnia-Herzegovina. You yeah. and I have both been on essentially the scenes, crime scenes that are yes. that are harrowing, that, that are, I think, difficult memories. For me, mm-hmm. uh, some of the most difficult memories were, were, were scenes of, of uh, mass murder associated with, uh, uh, with bombings of marketplaces yeah. and, and so forth. And in one case... Uh, in one case, Al Qaeda in Iraq used a 13-year-old girl uh, who held the hand of a three-year-old girl. Both of them were mentally disabled, strapped them with explosives, and walked them in uh, to to a marketplace in an area where where, where uh, Iraqis were doing police recruiting. So, um, when you when you arrive on this, when you're the first to arrive on a scene like that, you know it's a difficult it's a difficult scene to to take in. And I think that's the most difficult part of war. So you've been, in my view, David, you've been in the, in the middle of combat uh, because you've, you've, you've seen the most difficult aspects uh, of war. I, you know, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I um, and again, I don't want to appropriate the pain or the suffering of the people that I worked with, because some of those people I consider very close friends and people who were witnesses for me who um, courageously and bravely, courageous because they had moral courage and bravery because they were physically brave, they put themselves in a position where they could have been retaliated against very easily. Um, But you mentioned the young girl in Sanskimost, a small area in Northern Bosnia and Herzegovina, um, one of my responsibilities as the head of the Special Department for War Crimes in the State Prosecutor's Office in Bosnia and Herzegovina, I was the international experiment. I was the international, along with the Australian barrister, a British barrister, and a couple of others. I was the American um, who were sent in and integrated into the State Prosecutor's Office to actually do the work alongside our Bosnian uh, colleagues. And I became the head of that unit. Um, I had about 100 people that worked for me. I had about 17 prosecutors and a number of investigators who worked for me. And I was approached by the Missing Persons Institute and by the International Commission for Missing Persons, who had the humanitarian responsibility of locating graves, recovering bodies from those graves, and then doing the identification work that needed to be made so that they could be returned to family and they could be given an identity again. One of the worst things about war, when you've got mass casualties, mass killings, is people are robbed of their identity. They're buried together. They lose their personality. 
And one of the things that the humanitarian side does is try to reassociate those folks and give them identity back, give them back to their survivors. They approached me and said, we're doing this humanitarian work, but there's forensic value in what we're doing. You have to take responsibility for the forensic value. In Bosnia and Herzegovina, I had to prove the identity of the victims in the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavian in Rwanda. You know, the elements don't require that you prove the identity of each of the, of the, of the victims. You can prove that these victims were all killed at the same time, they were killed this way. But I don't have to say it was um, Mirsad or um, anybody, not, at, not in the international tribunal. I had to do that in Bosnia because the statute required that they be able to recover damages for their loss. So I assumed responsibility the last year and a half, two years I was there of going on to the mass graves making arrangements for the legal side of things, taking the evidence that was recovered, the artifacts that were recovered with the remains, and also being responsible for seeing to it that the remains were managed so that the identity, once it was established, could be used at trial. That led me to places all over Bosnia and Herzegovina that were depositions of remains that have basically been forgotten. I went to a nitrogen factory in the middle of absolute nowhere that was pretty much destroyed. And in one room in the nitrogen factory, there were, there were racks, old wooden racks. And in those racks, there were bags with human remains in the bags. Um, I went to other locations where there were remains in bags and artifacts associated with them that in 10 years, nobody had done anything with. They pretty much forgotten them. One of the places I was taken was Sanskimos was a large uh, building, agricultural building of some sort. And in the agricultural building, there were the remains of approximately 800 people laid out on the floor. These were skeletal remains. There was no real tissue left. They were all skeletal remains. Uh, they had been exhumed from graves in different parts around Sansky Most, and they were exhumed from uh, graves that were the result of incidents that had occurred in the early part of the war, when that area was overrun by Bosnian Serbs and villages were decimated, families were destroyed. And the effort was to cleanse, if you can use that term, I hate using the term ethnic cleansing because it fancies up something that is so nasty. But this village, uh, a village in a village, there was a grave that was, um, excavated, remains were recovered, brought back to this warehouse, and as best they could, they sorted the remains onto plastic sheets. And um, the forensic anthropologist that was working with me that day and my staff that was with me um, was taken down these roads to look at the, uh, at the remains, partly to get an idea of how big the task was going to be to deal with all of this. There was also a room off to the side that had all the clothing and other artifacts that had been um, recovered at the same time. I was stopped in front of a, of a um, plastic sheet with a very small accumulation of bones. And the forensic anthropologist asked me if I had any idea what I was looking at. And I said, no, I'm sorry, I don't. 
There was no skull, just rib cage, a femur, some bones. I still remember this. It was 10 years ago. I don't remember it like it was today. I remember the smell in the building as well, um, as I'm sure you do from some of the stuff you've been involved in. It's the smell, actually, that uh, lives with you. But anyway, um, she picked up the hyoid bone, which is the bone right here in the throat, and showed me the hyoid bone, and it was slit from one end to, uh, up to down. And the forensic anthropology, the anthropologist that was with us was a bone specialist, an osteologist, a forensic osteologist. And she said, we've put this back together as best we can. We believe it's the remains of a 14-year-old girl. And we believe, based on uh, what the pathologist has been able to tell us, is that she was um, held from behind and her throat was cut, nearly severing her head, by someone who was right-handed, pulling the knife from down to up across her throat. That, um, I think in the materials that I sent to you, that caused moral outrage in me. I think it caused some moral outrage in the people that were with me. Um, but that moral outrage was of no value unless I could make something of that and try to find out who did that and hold them personally accountable for having done that to who was obviously a defenseless 14-year-old girl. Uh, she's never been identified as far as I know. But every chance I get, I tell the story because I don't want her ever to be forgotten. Uh, and I don't think she ever will be forgotten, at least not by me and the people that were involved with her. But she was only one of 800 general in that in that room yeah. and those 800 were only 800 of thousands that were left without identity um, buried in one grave or another and in some cases buried in one grave first dug up spread out around the countryside and buried in secondary graves and then if that weren't bad, bad enough dug up again and buried in tertiary graves in different locations as the forces that had caused these things to happen were retreating under pressure and knew enough to try and um, hide their crimes for one. And two, continue with this objective of making it impossible for the population to identify their dead. Well, David, I, I, we all owe you a, you know, a, a debt for, for persevering in, under these harrowing conditions. And you know, I, I wondered if you might talk about you know, what you think you've accomplished right across your career for from my view i think what you've accomplished is you've helped reinforce the expectation right that that international criminal norms uh for example those that forbid these kind of you know war crimes crimes against humanity will be enforced right and that and that people responsible for violating them will be will be held accountable and and uh and i i think you have had you've been a, a very important figure in in the, the international effort, right, to make that the norm, uh, at least since the Nuremberg trials. And, and so could you talk maybe about the broad purpose of, of your career and then, and then maybe related a, a little bit to Ukraine and, and what you think ought to be the focus in Ukraine? Okay. Um, first of all, I'm only one small part of the conversation. There are people that have been at it longer than me. Uh, I came to it late, frankly. Um, I was, uh, um, federal prosecutor for the better part of my career, um, was the U.S. attorney in Utah for a short period of time. 
um, at the end of 2004 and my involvement with the Olympic games in Athens, um, I was given the opportunity to go to Bosnia and Herzegovina and the justice department cut me loose for a couple of years to do that. It turned out to be four years in the end. And it was kind of the, the, the peak of what I got to do, applying all of the things that I'd learned in the 25 years as a federal prosecutor, a military prosecutor, a, um, a naval prosecutor, a, um, an executive prosecutor, all of those sorts of things. They all came together in Bosnia and Herzegovina. And I don't think, I don't think I did anything more than just add my small part to what had become with the creation of the ICTY, a revitalization of this international need, felt need to enforce these very important rules that had been created for the most part in Nuremberg, but had not really gotten much, uh, hadn't really grown until the ICTY and the ICTR. And then it became more, we can't do it all on the international level. It just can't be done all on the international level. There's too much, uh, it takes too long. It's way too expensive to do it that way. So the realization when the ICTY was given its marching orders by the UN Security Council in 2004 was, turn this all back to domestic prosecution. Give it all back to the places where this happened. Brings it back closer to the people that were victimized. It also puts it back into a system that's known by the people in the place where these things occurred. But don't do it just by unloading all of this on the domestic side, give them international assistance. And I was fortunate enough to be one of those that got to go help do that. And not just arrogantly advise people about how to do it, or just sort of say, this is, this is what you've got to do. Um, you need to know how to cross-examine people. You need to know how to make argument. You need to know this or that. No, it was, okay, go do the work, big guy. Um, you step in, you take your share of the load and work it with your domestic colleagues and you'll learn from each other, but at least you'll start getting this huge caseload that's left uh, on its way to being done. And I think the, the, the thing that we accomplished, the international prosecutors that went to Bosnia and Herzegovina, some really sterling people, um, QC from Melbourne, um, this great barrister from England and I, just, just terrific people um, was that we actually did the work and we got quite a bit done. And we began to establish a jurisprudence in Bosnia and Herzegovina that was the equal of the international jurisprudence that had been created in, in The Hague. Um, that's a, that is a big accomplishment for the Bosnians as well as for the internationals that got to help. The other thing I think I brought to it, which was not something that was common to the domestic prosecutors, <clears throat> was this sense of um, purpose when it came to working with the dead uh, and dealing with the dead and trying to give personality and dignity to the people that were left in mass graves. If you've never been on a mass grave, one that's been in the ground, for eight, nine, 10 years. 
if you've not been there when it's uncovered and the remains are brought out, you can't even imagine what it's like to have all of this pushed together and um, lost essentially. And then to have really great people, cutting edge scientists and really dedicated people who I was fortunate to count myself among, um, put all the bones back together, make bodies out of these remains and identify them by their DNA and notify their families that we have found your loved one and your loved one now can be returned to you and buried with dignity. Uh, it's that I consider one of the one of the best things I ever got to do. Uh, we carried that over to Kosovo um, and tried to make that one of the objectives of our investigations in Kosovo. Although the purpose of Kosovo was much different than what we were doing in Bosnia and Herzegovina. So if you bring it back to Ukraine. Um, and David, I'll just mention, I'll just mention for our viewers, right? They're the first conviction of, of a Russian soldier in Ukrainian courts, okay. which gets to your point about using the local laws and, and local courts. You've also had Kareem Khan, who's the 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 uh, you know the chief prosecutor for the International Criminal Court, has referred the situation in Ukraine to the International Criminal Court. So you see both of these at work now, and I think yes. I think upwards of uh, almost forty countries have yes. referred the Ukrainian situation to the International Criminal Court. So we're starting to see this play out in Ukraine, and and I'm just anxious to hear what you know, what your thoughts are about what's happened so far and what the path is forward. Yeah, I think that you may you make a very good and interesting point. Um, the nations that have referred the matter to the International Criminal Court don't include the United States um, because the United States is not a state party to the International Criminal Court. Which 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 would be great for you to explain that as well, right? Because okay. the United States is, of course, very jealously guards our sovereignty. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. The idea of our founding is that sovereignty lies with the people, yeah. and 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 the people exercise that sovereignty through their representatives in their government. Yes. Once you cede that sovereignty to an international body that is not beholden to the to the people, the thought in the United States among many Americans is that that's inappropriate. Because it cuts against our our constitution and and the principle that sovereignty lies with the people. So, I, I mean, you're the attorney. But that's how that's how I see it as just an observer of this. But if you could explain that to our viewers, it'd be great. Well, I, <clears throat> there is a history um, behind all of this. Um, it goes back to Nuremberg. I mean, one of the driving forces at Nuremberg was Justice Jackson, the Roosevelt administration the people that were Stimson, the Secretary of State, who pushed for a tribunal, a ju judicial model of dealing with those who were culpable in World War II. It wasn't a model that the British wanted anything to do with. In fact, I think Churchill had made a comment at one point that I just take the people that were left over during and the people they could find, shoot them, be done with it, get it over with, summary execution. That was not the way that the American uh, conscience wanted to see it done. So the U.S. was a driving force be behind creating this tribunal, as difficult as it was to do, to try the remaining Nazis for their, for their crimes. Now, due process, not due process, substantive law issues, those are all part of it. 
but the main thing that I want to get across is that the U.S. drove that. Now, the U.S. was also a big part of creating the Nuremberg Principles in 1950, a big part of creating the United Nations, a big part of the international rules-based order that began to form in, with real authority after World War II. Um, <clears throat> in 1993, after the war in Bosnia and Herzegovina had gotten such widespread attention, um, one of the first media wars in 1992, 93, 94, 95, where it was covered almost instantaneous, but not instantaneous like it is now, but Christian Amanpour, Sylvia Pajoli, all those folks were on the ground reporting it, and it was getting back. Um, not Vietnam, but a European country under attack and Europeans being killed, siege, mass murder, concentration camps. Yeah. Um, starvation. Starvation, yeah, right. rape. In fact, it was the sexual violence that really precipitated the drive to get the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia created by the Security Council. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, the Russians um, didn't object to creating the ICTY, neither did China. I, I mean, it was a universal effort to see accountability for what was going on in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Um, the US was a big part of that and drove the creation of the ICTY drove the expansion of the ICTY to include Rwanda. David Sheffer, Ambassador Sheffer, was a great friend of mine yeah. and, a real, and a real pioneer in all of this, was also the first ambassador at large for war crimes, uh, Madeleine Albright's ambassador at large for war crimes, President Clinton's ambassador. He was in, instrumental in helping create the Rome Statute. That is the statute that creates the International Criminal Court. And in fact, when that was all finished, the U.S. had had a major driving role in what went into the international, into the Rome Statute, including a provision that allowed for us and other countries to take care of our own business and make the International Criminal Court the court of last resort. It's Article 17. It's called complementarity. If I show that I'm willing and able to do my own business, hold my own people accountable for war crimes, uh, stick to the rules and make it happen in my own courts, there's no reason for me to fear the International Criminal Court. It's not gonna happen. That was our, partly our part introduction into the Rome Statute. We wanted to be able to maintain our control over those sorts of things. And we have a robust judiciary, one that can actually do that sort of thing. And one that has a track record for the most part of getting that done, both in its military courts and in its civilian courts now with Mija and the other rules that allow prosecution of contractors, for example. So we do a pretty good job of that. And we've got nothing to fear really from the International Criminal Court. Now, Sheffer signed the Rome Statute on behalf of the Clinton administration, but it was never submitted to the Senate because the Clinton administration knew that if it was submitted to the Sen Senate, there were forces in the Senate that would have, would have never let it come to the floor. It would have never been ratified as a treaty. So it was never ratified. But whereas the letter was signed, it indicated we would follow the obligations that the Rome Statute imposed on us. 
that had a bad impact, or there was a bad impact on it uh, in, during the Bush administration for various reasons. And again, in the Obama administration, there was never any real drive to see the ICC become part of U.S. And, and, and David, hasn't it been weaponized to a certain extent for political purposes? I'm thinking about, <laughs> you know, the, the complaints, uh, you know, against, you know, against nations that were friendly uh, toward Israel, for example, or, yeah. you know, or, 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 you com or complaints lodged against, uh, against uh, the United States that, that have a political motive associated with it. Isn't that part of the problem in terms of the skepticism associated with, uh, with joining? I, I, would, I would agree with you when it comes to the skepticism part. Yeah. Not surely I would, I'm not sure I would agree with you fully with regard to, with regard to this being weaponized. Um, I'm a good friend of Fatou Bensouda, uh, a person I know really, really well. I knew Luis Moreno Campo, but um, not well. I know Kareem Khan, but not well. But I knew uh, no, Fatou Bensouda quite well. And Fatou was the person that was on the other end of the Afghanistan investigation that, was, that, that caused the greatest stir, I believe, um, in, in the US over the ICC and, and its involvement in things. Um, I don't think that was politicized or weaponized. It was a situation that the ICC was seized of and they took and did the way the rules required that they do it. When you're talking about Israel, that's another matter, uh, Palestine and Israel. And I'm not sure that they've come out of that all that well, but, but Understand too that all these things are aspirational as well as practical. Sure, it was an, it was aspirational to have a court situated in one place that could look at situations that were either atrocities or were the beginning of atrocities and address those in a way that there would be some resolution that might keep that from happening or address it properly. Um, the problem with the ICC is that it's understaffed, it's small, um, it's underauthorized, it has limits on its power that make it uh, difficult for it to do what it was expected to do. And um, it's, it's, it's been accused of focusing on third world countries in Africa to the exclusion of all other situations in the world that pose um, difficult situations. Uh, that's changing. Ukraine is the watershed. Uh, right now, the international regime for investigating and prosecuting violations of international humanitarian law is at its most vulnerable and its point of greatest opportunity. Uh, if it proves itself in this situation, if it proves that it can organize and manage this massive investigation and parcel it out to the people that are best suited to do it and do it in the right way. And more importantly, if this stampede for involvement in all of this can be brought under control so that the evidence is collected in the right way, it's preserved in the proper way, it's accessible to those who need it, it's actually the procedural side of it is managed so that everybody's got what they need to do what they need in the places where this is going to happen, then you will see a great advancement, I think, in the credibility and the commitment 
to the enforcement of international humanitarian law. The U.S. is already moving in that direction. Um, Senator Graham's resolution, for example, the, the Senate resolution that pledged new support for the International Criminal Court, pledged new support for the international involvement in the investigation and prosecution of Russian atrocity is a big step because Senator Graham, um, God love him, was never a big supporter of this sort of thing. Um, There's also a um, move. There was at the same time um, that there was this consternation about the ICC getting involved in US investigating U.S. people that were involved in things to do with Afghanistan and Poland in particular. A, um, the American Servicemen's Protection Act, I believe is the way it's phrased, yeah. which, which forbid cooperation with the International Criminal Court, but it only forbid cooperation with the International Criminal Court as it applied to Americans, those who might be the subject of investigation by the ICC. It didn't outlaw cooperation with the ICC when it comes to, for example, Ukraine. So there is movement now to become supportive of the ICC's investigation, both financially and with technical support in Ukraine. I think the United States is going to provide some monetary help, some funding for technical expertise to the Ukrainian prosecutor general to the amount of about $10 million to help her bring this all together and make things happen on the ground domestically. So I see all of this right now as a very sad historical event, a tragedy for the Ukrainian people, tragedy for the individuals. The economy of Ukraine is destroyed. The country and culture is is at risk. But as far as the enforcement and prosecution of violations of international humanitarian law, it's at a zenith right now. If, you, if this can be done the right way, I think you'll see a big advancement, both on the US side and internationally in dealing with these sorts of things. Well, David, you know, we're, all, we're almost out of time, but I, I do wanna ask if you could summarize for our viewers, maybe wait, what are some of the continuities in, in, terms of, uh, in terms of prosecuting war crimes, crimes against humanity, some of the principles that have developed over time, but also also what kind of changes do you see in in, uh, in Ukraine? I mean, I'm thinking of you, the ubiquity of social media yeah. and, 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 yeah. uh, and, and cell phones, uh, uh, iPhones to, to document yeah. what's happening. And then the growth of these, uh, of these uh, civilian uh, analytical firms like Bellingcat, for example, yes, has been able to right. piece so much of this together. Yeah. Um, so just can you take up the theme of continuity and change? What are, you know, what are, what are the principles or the, you know, the, the fundamental principles that have evolved since Nuremberg that you think are going to uh, continue on in Ukraine? And then what do you see as changing in Ukraine? Let me start with the last first and then I'll, I'll finish with what I think are the continuities, the big important principles that persist. Um, you talked about Bellingcat. Um, we met with some people from Bellingcat in Nuremberg a couple of weeks ago to talk about what they're doing. Um, we, there's a group called the Commission for International Justice and Accountability that is a nonprofit, uh, non-governmental organization that has been collecting evidence in Syria for years uh, and has been stockpiling that and working with the international mechanism for, this, for Syria to collect and manage 
thousands and thousands of items of evidence that have been collected in Syria. Um, the ubiquitous nature of social media, everybody's got a uh, cell phone, everybody's got a camera on their cell phone, everybody's taking video. And they're not just handing it over to law enforcement, they're loading it up into the internet uh, so that everybody can see it. Media has been on the ground since February the 24th, before February the 24th, filming, going into places where diplomats can't go and going into places where even the military is not going. I mean, I remember one Matthew Chance or whoever it was from CNN being in an airport and going over and asking somebody, where are the Russians? And what do you mean, we're the Russians? Um, so you've got all of this accumulation of almost immediate um, material, not necessarily evidence, it's information. It has to be verified and qualified and it has to be certain to be accurate and to, to be what it purports to be. So in anticipation of Ukraine, not knowing that you were, Ukraine would ever happen, this kind of thing was going on in Syria. In a yeah, big and we should we should mention that, right? I mean, we should really focus a little bit on Syria and yes, and and uh, and and this courageous man uh, Caesar, Caesar, right? Who mm-hmm. who who uh, who exfiltrated yes. a photographic and and other evidence uh, uh, of of the atrocities there, and that which precipitated the Caesar Act in the United States, which resulted in sanctions on individuals and entities associated yes. with those. Yes. those crimes against humanity, you know, so, yes. but uh, go, go, David, could you explain that just quickly to our viewers, the Syria sure. example? Yes, of course. Um, and, and I should say that Caesar's evidence, along with other evidence collected by this commission for international justice and accountability and others led the Germans to prosecute people in Koblenz oh, and right, get yeah, convictions yeah. in Koblenz right. in the last little while. You talked to the, to the German prosecutor did that case in Nuremberg just a little while ago a very big development that is third states, third nations taking on these prosecutions when they can get physical or personal jurisdiction over people that were were involved, that were doing it. Syria, um, the, the Syrian regime, along with the Russians, have committed untold atrocity. And the Iranians, and the Iranians. Yeah. And the Iranians in Homs, for example, in Aleppo and other places, decimated uh, using illegal means of warfare, the barrel bombs and and other things, indiscriminate attacks on civilian populations, the whole gamut. Use of of chemical weapons. Yes. uh, Deliberate targeting of hospitals, which you already mentioned. Yes. Um, The evidence of all of that seems to be so obvious that you've got videos and you've got everything else. But verifying that, ensuring that that is what it purports to be, it's not been manipulated, for example, or it's not been added in cuts so that you get uh, something other than what was, was actually on the ground to be photographed, raised a concern in the international community that I'm part of. And a set of protocols was created called the Berkeley Protocols, which goes into how you manage metadata, collect it, preserve it, how you verify one thing or another. Bellingcat's had a lot to do with that because Bellingcat is one of those- this is a relatively new publication, isn't it, David? Yes, it's a new group that Mm -hmm. uh, puts out um, what they purport to be information that battles misinformation and disinformation. Um, CJA, the Commission on International Justice and Accountability, actually recruits people inside of Syria and outside of Syria 
to deliver documents and other items that are incriminatory. And they collect them and preserve them, verify them, uh, analyze them, break them down and make them available for Germany, for example, to use in prosecution or other countries to use in prosecutions. Um, they're invaluable. Um, there is an international, a, a UN General Assembly created organization, it's called the IMMM, that actually does that on, a, on an official or, or um, international basis. So there's all kinds of, there are any number of people, all kinds of organizations that have gotten together to begin amassing the evidence for use in prosecuting people that are responsible for crimes in Syria, including Assad and the, and the regime leadership. That's there. And the important part of that gets to the last part of what you were asking. So what? Uh, so what? You've got all this stuff, so what? One of the basic principles of international humanitarian law since the Nuremberg principles, ever since Nuremberg is one, it's individual accountability. It's not a nation. It's not an army. It's you, General McMaster, David Schwindeman, Vladimir Putin. You're the person that's responsible for your acts and for what you are obligated to do in conflict. That's the first thing. So it's individual accountability. Second is I have to prove that you did what you did beyond a reasonable doubt. And you have the presumption of innocence. Now you may not like it, but that's one of the concepts and principles that attends a judicial model of holding someone accountable for their crimes. You have the presumption of innocence and I have to prove that you're guilty beyond a reasonable doubt to a neutral and detached fact finder and law applier. Now, the third thing is there's no statute of limitations for these crimes. Unlike ordinary crimes with the exception of murder, there's no statute of limitations. So no, long, no matter how long it takes, you may find yourself eventually before a court having to answer for what you did on evidence that I'm collecting right now and preserving in a way that it's going to be available later on. That's the importance of what's going on right now. That's the importance of this great stampede to help Ukraine amass this evidence and put it in a form that can be preserved and used. I think it. I, I think it is going to be unprecedented, isn't it, in terms yeah. of the amount of data and evidence yeah. uh, that's that, that that's available. You know, David, I can't. I can't thank you enough for for this. I mean, I feel like I've learned quite a bit about about uh, about war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide. You know what the standards are, and then of course, you know that we're still watching. You know these these crimes uh, you know, unfold, uh, and 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 we're exposed to more and more of it in Ukraine. I guess the last thing I'd like to end with is what what do you think is is the danger here? What should we keep our eye on in terms of uh, of what happens next in Ukraine? I think what what I'm concerned about a little bit is is getting numb to all this, right? Oh, yeah. As we see the war go on, right? And oh, yeah. how do how do we prevent our, ourselves from becoming, you know, numb to to these atrocities and you know, how can we make sure that we sustain the will necessary to support Ukraine uh, and then to help them you know, cope with this trauma and eventually recover from it. Yeah, well, programs like yours, media attention. Um, I know from personal experience 
that moral outrage lasts only as long as it lasts. Um, when it begins to wear off, then the fight really starts. Uh, for example, 10 years after the event, we were fighting every day for the funding and support we needed to continue to do what we were doing in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Um, I fought endlessly, and you probably know about some of that from your former job, but I was fighting constantly in Brussels and in The Hague for the support I needed, both political and financial, because I was the only American in that effort in the Kosovo Specialist Chambers and the Kosovo Specialist Prosecutor's Office. I was fighting every day for the support I needed, fighting with people over contracts, fighting people over whatever. The outrage that precipitated the formation of those units had, had kind of died. And so, but the investigation hadn't. The purpose for the investigation had died. Bosnia to government is the same thing. I met every day with people that were still suffering, horribly suffering in Bosnia and Herzegovina from the effects of what had been done to them uh, in cases that I was trying to put together so I could prosecute the people that had done it to them, rape victims, uh, people that had had tattoos put on them and then cut off of them because they were the different confessions. I mean, those people live every day with it. Uh, it's not moral outrage for them. It's, it's actually their person, their life. That's what they're living. That's one thing, I think. Keeping that foremost in mind, then individuals are the people that are being affected by all of this. They're being hurt terribly, not just in Ukraine, in Syria, in Africa, in Palestine, in Israel, all over, in, in China, in the Uyghurs. These are people they're not groups, they're people, and the people that are suffering terribly because of these things. And it's a human thing to want to see people held accountable for that. And as long as you can keep that alive, I think you've got a chance. But in Ukraine, this is far from over, as you know. Uh, this is gonna drag on for quite a while. And as it drags on, as it did in Bosnia and Herzegovina, as it drags on, the fighting will get uh, more uncontrolled, more undisciplined, um, more desperate on the side of a, a, a military that is not, has proven itself to be not terribly professional, not terribly well-led, lacking, as you and I have discussed in the past many times, a really good professional senior enlisted group that can manage its soldiers, even its conscripts, in a way that allows what's going on not to affect so terribly what comes after this, the fighting is all over. I mean, I might end by emphasizing my experience has been both in Bosnia and Herzegovina and elsewhere, in Afghanistan, for example, and in Kosovo, um, how we fight affects terribly what we can do after the fighting ends. If you fight in an undisciplined, chaotic way, you kill at will, you destroy because you can destroy. Rebuilding, putting things back together again is not only expensive, but it can become very, very difficult from all different perspectives. Uh, just cleaning up the rubble can be um, an impossible task, human rubble, economic rubble and physical rubble. Um, it, it, it doesn't end when the fighting ends. I know that for a fact. It goes on and on and on and on. The goal of all of this has to be that you can get people to begin to live 
with their past as opposed to being stuck with living in the past constantly and being reminded every day of what you've suffered and lost, but live with it and move on. Well, David, I, I can't, I can't thank you enough on behalf of the Hoover institution. Thank you for helping us learn more about battlegrounds important to building a future of peace. We can only hope, right. And, and, and prosperity for generations to come. It's been wonderful to be with you. you thank too, you so much. You too, general. Thank you. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.